I like that your spark bird is Russell Crowe. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to yet another podcast episode that is for the birds of the Raw Safari podcast. I know, I know, I hate myself too. Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right, so um, I have some really good news for you and some really bad news for you about this episode as we go into the first episode of 2023. So first of all, let me start off by saying, Happy New Year, y'all. So today I'm bringing you an episode with Noah Stricker, who is a professional birder. Now, the term birder gets tossed around a lot if you are in the animal sphere on the interwebs. But uh, I feel like, you know, a lot of people know what it means. A lot of people don't know what it means. There's there's kind of uh, a weird question about whether or not you may be a birder yourself. And so we're going to talk about a lot of that in this episode. Um, and I think it's it's kind of interesting to see how much birding has taken off in the last couple of years. And Noah has some opinions on why that is as well. So uh, Noah has written a book called Birding Basics, and it is one of those amazing National Geographic books with awesome pictures and great words and all the cool things. And uh, Noah is is a really good birder. I mean, obviously, as he is a professional, um, but he actually uh, did something called a big year where he traveled around the world and saw a ton of bird species. How many? Well, you'll have to listen to find out, but it is a really, really cool story. And what I love about this um, whole episode is that it's not just talking about birds and birding and awesome species and all of that kind of stuff, but it's also a bit of a guide on how you can get started as a, a birder, as an amateur birder, and how you can become involved with things like the Christmas bird count. Well, I mean, that one's over now, but the next bird count that the Audubon Society does and all that good stuff. There are actually some apps and websites that can help you with all of this, and we get into all of that in the episode, and I'll include some links in the show notes as well. So that's that's the good news about this episode. It's it's really a, a cool episode and, and very interesting. The bad news about this episode is that in two and a half years of creating this podcast, I have never encountered the amount of technical issues that I encountered while recording my interview with Noah. So I use an online application called CleanFeed to get good audio. That's uh, why a lot of the remote interviews I do sound so much better than the standard Zoom interviews you hear on a lot of um, podcasts. And uh, we we hooked into CleanFeed and it just wasn't working. We couldn't hear each other. I don't know if it was them or Noah or me or what. But eventually we had to abandon CleanFeed and move to Zoom. And um, it was bad Zoom audio even for bad Zoom audio. 
Uh, and so what I ended up doing, honestly, is there are just chunks of Noah's answers that were so bad that I didn't want to make you try to decipher them. So I deciphered them and I just punch right into his answers occasionally with a few words that would have gotten distorted by the Zoom audio. Um, yeah, so you're occasionally going to hear me answering my own questions, but only for a couple of words. You're mostly going to hear Noah. And actually, the audio that I kept in sounds really good. So I'm, I'm overall very pleased with this uh, episode, like audio quality wise. Um, it's just going to be a little weird to hear me butting in, but you'll figure it out. It's it's not hard. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, I have faith in the intellect of anyone and everyone who listens to this podcast. Uh, so yeah, that was the, the path that I took. I won't go into all of the other technical details. I'm not giving you the full breakdown. Let's just say that of all the episodes that I have worked on, this was the one where I was literally like, I don't know if we're going to have an episode. And we do. And it's a good one. So I'm excited about that. Uh, Noah also had a hard out, and because of the tech issues, the interview only runs about a half hour long, but um, it's a really good half hour with a lot of cool content, and Noah's a really cool guy with some really cool stories, so I'm excited to share all of those with you. And then after the interview, I'm going to have a little bit longer of an outro than I usually do because I, I want to share a little personal story about birding uh, with, with y'all as well. So um, stay tuned after the interview for that. And uh, don't forget to follow along on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on TikTok at Rossafari Pod, all that good stuff. Make sure you hit subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review, all the things that you hear me say all the time. And now I'm going to stop doing that and instead say, here is my interview with Noah Stricker, professional birder and author of National Geographic's Birding Basics book. Yay, alliteration. <laughs> All right, so why don't we start off by you telling me who you are? He says, my name is Noah Stricker. And I am a professional birder. I study birds, I lead bird tours, and I write bird books. Amazing. That's How did you find out that was a profession? Uh, just pretty much by experience. I never really set out to study birds as a living or a career. But back when I was 12 years old, here in Eugene, Oregon, my fifth grade teacher put a bird feeder on our classroom window and she would stop class every time a new bird showed up and make us try to identify, was it like a black cap chickadee or an evening grosbeak or a red-breasted nuthatch? And I just thought that was the coolest thing that you could figure out different types of birds just by looking at them carefully. So that was the beginning of the long, slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs> That's really awesome. It's always cool when there's like a teacher that can encourage you or something like that. Um, so did you like, what did you study to become a birder? Well, I, I initially got into birds for almost the collecting aspect, you know, trying to see every bird in the field guide and building up my life list for a birder. When you see a life bird, that's a species you've never seen before in your life. And you literally make a list of them all and try to collect them all. But eventually you see all the birds that are at least common around the place where you live. And so then it becomes more about studying bird behavior and their personalities and trying to figure out why birds do what they do. It's not like they're some inanimate object that you're collecting. They're living, breathing creatures. And I really like that about birding. You can go to far-flung destinations and try to track down birds you've never seen before. 
Or you can watch one common bird in your backyard all day long and try to interpret what it's doing. So just so I'm clear on this, um, you're a real life Pokemon collector. (laughs) Oh, when that Pokemon Go craze happened a few years ago, birders were just like, well, yeah, this is what we've been doing all along, (laughs) except it's like real life. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So, yeah, I feel like birding has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of years, but that maybe people didn't know the term super well before that. So, um, like, if you had to give an elevator pitch to someone who doesn't know the word, what is birding exactly? Birding as a verb tends to be a focused pursuit of birds for the sake of finding them. So it's a level beyond just bird watching, I suppose, where you're enjoying birds, but not necessarily trying to figure out what they are or going out of your house specifically for the purpose of observing them. Birding is its many things. It's a sport. It's a game. It's a lifestyle. It's a hobby. It's collecting. It's hunting. It's all of this stuff rolled into one with an element of gambling as well, because you never really know what you're going to find. <laughs> That's awesome. But I do want to clarify, when you say hunting, you're not bird hunting. You're hunting to find the species, not to yes. then shoot <laughs> the species. Just for my listeners, okay. I just want to make sure they're not like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hunting without the uh, the ammunition involved. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I like it. I like it. Um, so what's your, I mean, I, I don't even know if this is a real question, but like, do you have a favorite bird? Oh, I have spent many hours considering what my favorite bird might be. <laughs> and I think out of all the birds in the world, my f- personal favorite is the turkey vulture nice that's a good one turkey vultures they're like the classic like buzzard people call them they're a scavenger so they eat dead animals they're the bird that if you look in a cartoon and you see a bald-headed bird sitting on a cactus like waiting for someone to die that is a turkey vulture but this is mostly because when i was in high school there was this david attenborough tv series called life of birds And there's an episode of that TV show where Sir Attenborough goes out into this rainforest in Trinidad with a piece of old rotten beef. And he buries it under some leaves on the forest floor. And then he backs off and starts muttering about vultures. And then they cut. And like 40 minutes later, this turkey vulture flies down through the canopy and goes right to the spot because it can smell the piece of dead meat from like two miles away and digs it up. And when I saw that on TV, I was just so inspired. I was like, that is the greatest bird feeding idea I've ever come across. So I had just got my driver's license. I was what 15 or 16. I went out with my 88 Volvo sedan that I just inherited, which had a really big trunk and tracked down a full-size roadkill deer carcass, put that in the trunk drove it back home, dumped it out at the edge of the front yard and was like, hey, mom and dad, I'm going to see how many turkey vultures I can attract. And (laughs) sure enough, the next day we had like 40 of them sitting on the roof of our house and they hung around for the whole next week. It was amazing. It it was truly the best bird feeder I've ever come up with. (laughs) And I've loved turkey vultures ever since. (laughs) That is incredible. And your parents just let you do that. Yeah, I think by that point they were they were used to 
bird hijinks from their <laughs> bird obsessed son. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. My mother would not have allowed me to get away with that one. Just, just for the record <laughs> that, wow. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> oh man. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, what is, um, I know that there's a common term in birding, uh, which is spark bird. Can you explain what a spark bird is? Yeah, generally a spark bird for a birder. It's the bird that you see almost unexpectedly when you're not even really a birder or paying attention to birds that just grabs you in some way. It's extremely beautiful or um, comes into your life in an interesting way that you don't expect. and resets your worldview and suddenly you are aware of birds for the rest of your life and it changes your life. So that is a spark bird. For me, I don't know if I really have a a particular spark bird. I suppose you could say that turkey vulture was like my spark bird for studying bird behavior in some ways. <laughs> but um, some birders, it's like a, a sudden, like seeing the light kind of thing. Like, oh my gosh, I just saw a Blackburnian warbler and I am going to be a birder now forever because they are amazing. <laughs> that is a spark bird. Nice. I think, I think mine is a pied crow. I got to meet at a zoo and I liked birds well enough, but like I was the type of dude who would walk past the bird exhibits to go see mammals. And, and then I talked to Russell Crow, the pied crow. And um, yeah, I just, I just fell in love. And now birds are some of the animals I post the most on Instagram and I always keep my eyes out. And uh, yeah, it's cool how like one bird can just have that life-changing experience, you know? I like that your spark bird is Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> it's very on brand for me. Um, so uh, you wrote this book, Birding Basics, and um, it's a National Geographic book, which is like pretty darn cool. That's It's got to feel really good. And I know you've, you've collaborated with them before and such, um, but tell me a little bit about what that process was like. Well, this book really came out of the pandemic over the last two or three years. There's been this huge surge of interest in birds because, um, well, it was like the one thing that was not shut down. You could still go outside into nature and, and, and see things and interact. And so there's all of these people who have got interested in birds just in the past two or three years, which is this big positive to come out of the pandemic which I think is really inspiring. And so this is really aimed at people who are just getting into birds for the first time and want to know all the ins and outs. It's a, it's a full-length, full-color guidebook starting from the very beginning. And then there's some meatier stuff in there as well that's, um, that you might not think of initially, like how to pronounce the tricky-to-pronounce bird names in your <laughs> field guide and what to wear, like what bird fashion is like out there. <laughs> So there's a few topics scattered in there like that among the what what kind of gear to get and how to find other birders, what how to contribute your sightings, etc. It's um it's a beautiful book. I really love it. It's it's really great. Um what's it like working with Nat Geo and how did you get involved with them? I first got involved with Nat Geo after I had done a big year of birding in 2015. So a big year is where you try to track down as many species of birds as you can in one calendar year. And it's popular birders will do the big years in like their home county or their home city or their home state, maybe. If you're really crazy, maybe a whole country. Like um, 
in 2011, there was this Hollywood movie called The Big Year starring Jack Black, Owen Wilson, and Steve Martin playing bird watchers. That's never gonna happen again as far as I know, <laughs> but uh, it was amazing that it came together that way. That was based on a true story. And in 2015, I did a big year, but worldwide. So no one had ever really done one that ambitiously before. And I set the world record for how many birds anyone has ever seen in 365 days. I tracked down 6,042 bird species, which is about <laughs> 60% of all birds on Earth. So when I got home after the end of that year, I was like this birding machine after not taking a day off for an entire year in 41 countries around the world. And then, um, and then got involved with Nat Geo and doing some book projects with them. And so one thing leads to another. <laughs> That's amazing. And we clearly needed to talk a little bit more about your big year. So what, like, what inspired you to do that? How did you fund that? How, tell me some stories from the road. Like I'm a touring musician. I'm on the road all the time and I cannot imagine what you just did. <laughs> it was pretty cool because, uh, the way the big year came together was that there is a network of birders all over the world now. Birding has become a very international pursuit these days. So I was able to track down local bird nerds living in all of these far-flung places that I wanted to visit once I had put together an ideal route that I figured would get me the most species by connecting all the different habitats of the world over the course of the year. And so I would fly in to some place you know, Northwest Argentina and have lined up a local burger that would pick me up at the airport. We'd go out, hit all the local hotspots. I'd usually stay at their house and then uh, fly on to the next place. And so it was a whole year of not just seeing the birds of the world, but meeting the birders of the world, which in the end was almost the most memorable part of it because I ended up meeting hundreds and hundreds of different birders all along the way. That's amazing. And that, that leads to a great question, which is, what is the birding community like? What are these people like? Um, I mean, you use the term bird nerds. And uh, I know from my animal experiences with people, nerd is a good word for it. I call myself one as well. But what is the community like? And I also, is the community changing? Because I know that there was the whole black birders controversy and everything. It's time for Interrupting. 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 Interrupting John. So just in case you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about that, uh, it's it's something also known as the Central Park uh, bird watching incident. And this happened on the same day that uh, George Floyd was arrested and murdered back in May of 2020. Um, and it was a confrontation that occurred between Christian Cooper, who was a birder, who happened to be a black man, and um, Amy Cooper, unrelated, who was was a white woman walking her dog without a leash illegally in uh, Central Park in New York City in, in a place known as the Ramble. And um, when the uh, birder, Christian, asked that uh, that Amy leash her dog, uh, she said no. And then Christian actually beckoned the dog towards him with a dog treat. And Amy freaked out, started yelling, don't you touch my dog, called 911, said that um, he was threatening her and her dog and all that stuff. And um, 
It was just uh, another lovely illustration of the racism that our country has way too much of. And uh, so from that, there were a bunch of people who decided to uh, make a bigger push towards showing that there are people of color who are interested in things like STEM and bird watching and all that stuff. And, um, there became the Black Birders Movement and they launched Black Birders Week, which is a week long series of online events highlighting black nature enthusiasts. And in reaction to all of that, people like Karina Newsom and Jason Ward and Danielle Bellany and other people came up with the idea of Black Birders Week and, uh, just trying to normalize the idea of black people in STEM fields. Crazy thought, right? But, um, you know, sadly, something that we, we still need today. So, yeah, that is what I am referring to there. Okay, back to the interview. And I'm, I'm curious what your take on all of that is as well. It's hard to pin down these days what, who exactly a birder is because, I mean, traditionally, there was this stereotype that birders are older retirees pick up birding as a hobby something to do when they have some disposable income and free time but it's not really that way so much now birders are all kinds of people because birds are everywhere it doesn't really matter who you are or even where you're from anyone can get interested and the availability of information and ability to connect with each other means that all kinds of people are getting into birds now. So there's lots of young birders out there as well, which I am really heartened to see. And not just in Western countries, but also in places like I found on my big year in the Philippines and Borneo and India, there's all these like bird clubs sprouting up in places where they never had before. So birders are a very international cosmopolitan crowd and they span the full range of all kinds of demographics and income levels and everything else you can imagine. That's really cool. I like how universal it is. It makes sense. They're out there and it's free, but um, that's, that's really cool to hear. That's very cool. Um, what, uh, how much would you say of the birding community is interested in and involved in any type of like conservation? Well, I think that birding, which is not really a conservation oriented activity at the outset, it's something fun for someone to do is a gateway to conservation. So you can't really conserve something if you don't even know it exists. Once you learn that it exists, then you tend to start caring about it more. And so having armies of birders going out into the field that are fascinated by birds and want to see and experience more of them, I think is the prerequisite to having effective conservation now and in the future. And I think we're even already starting to see that, that um, people are caring more and more about not just birds, but the whole natural world around them. I think it's sort of poignant that just right now, as so many birds are facing kind of an uncertain future because of development and climate change and all the rest of the threats that they're facing these days. Also, at the same time, never have more people cared about them. So there are also really heartening, inspiring conservation success stories happening all over the world right now. Yeah, very cool. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so, you know, assuming that some of my audience here will want to start to check out birding, other than by obviously buying Birding Basics, your latest book, uh, what what type of stuff do people need to get uh, involved in? And, you know, what kind of gear should they get? How How should people get started? 
The great thing about birding is you don't need a lot to get started. In fact, technically speaking, you don't need anything at all. You just walk out your front door, see what birds are around. I do that almost every single morning, even now. (laughs) That's my morning routine before breakfast to do a few minute walk around the yard and see what birds have flown in overnight. A couple things will really help you out though, in terms of gear, get a field guide that covers the birds of your area, at least on the statewide level and has all the birds in it that are possible, not just some of them. And a good pair of binoculars And by a good pair, I don't mean like the dusty antique ones that have been sitting in your grandparents' attic for the last 50 years. (laughs) Binocular technology has really come a long way in the past couple of decades. And so if you get a newer pair, that will definitely help you out a lot because you'll be able to actually see what you're looking at in the field. And that's not necessarily that expensive. Like $200 or so can get you a nice, good, decent pair of binoculars. Binoculars and a field guide is all you really need to go out and get started and and start trying to put names to the birds that you see. I think that you can appreciate birds without naming them all, and you can study bird behavior and find other ways of appreciating birds. But there is something to be said for knowing a name. It's just like meeting people. The first thing you ask is what their name is. And and then you start asking where they're from and what they do. And the same is true for birds. So once you know them by name, then you can get on to all the other details as well. Nice. I like that. That's very cool. Um, Are there any apps or any more like technology-based things that people are using for birding nowadays? He said, yes, there are a lot of birding apps available right now, and many of them are very useful. To have downloaded to your phone. One app that I would recommend is called Merlin, M E R L I N. It's totally free. It's produced by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. It includes a full field guide to North American birds, or you can even download extra packs for free and cover other parts of the world as well if you go traveling. About Merlin, that makes it really neat is that it will also help you identify birds within the app. So it can ask you questions and narrow down what bird you're seeing, or you can give it a photo and it will identify the photo with like 95% accuracy, which is pretty incredible. Or now you can even hold your phone up in the field when a bird is singing nearby and it will take a pretty good guess at what bird is making a noise by analyzing the vocalization in real time. It's like Shazam for bird sounds. <laughs> All of that is available within Merlin. And uh, it's really fun to play around with. <laughs> that's kind of amazing, actually. That's uh, wow. That's special. I like that. Um so, uh, you know, when you're when you're trying to figure out a bird's identity and you're not using Merlin where it just tells you, you know, what it is. Um, like what, uh, what do you use? Is it, is it based on like their, their coloration or their size or like kind of what, what steps do you take to figure out what birds you're seeing? The best way to identify a bird is to work from the most general characteristics all the way down to the specific ones. So by general, I mean, like, first of all, which geographic region of the world are you in? And What season is it and what behavior are you witnessing from the bird and what habitat is it in? Those things alone will wipe out like 
most of the possibilities in the field guide. And then you get down to a set of birds that it really could be. And then you need to start looking at? Its appearance and size and shape. And and then you get down to specific field marks. So like, does it have wing bars? Does it have an eye ring? Does it have a, a throat that contrasts with the rest of the body? And those you tend to start to get to know with experience over time by studying your field guide and then going out and trying to put the field marks to the birds. Vocalizations also really help. Birds are just as distinctive by ear as they are by sight. And so probably these days when I go out on a walk in the woods, especially, I'm doing most of the bird identification by ear. And then anything that sounds interesting, then I can go hone in on that one and try to get a look at it. Okay, that's cool. Very, very cool. Um, And uh, so... I know that we're, I think we're in the middle of or have just started the Christmas bird count. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is and and what bird counts are and how that works? Yeah, the Christmas bird count season is is well underway. It started on December 15th and it goes all the way through January 5th. The Christmas bird count is an annual event, usually organized by Audubon groups all over the U.S. and Canada and beyond. Each count takes place on a certain day. Within a 15-mile-wide circle. Christmas bird count circles are usually around cities or places where birders live nearby. And on the count day, you are assigned to a smaller area within that circle with a team. And you fan out for the day and try to count as many birds and identify them as you can. And then keep track of all the numbers of different species that you encounter. And then at the end of the day, all the teams get together for a countdown or a banquet or something like that and swap stories from the day and then add up all the data. And then the data goes into a Christmas bird count database that stretches back well more than 100 years. So it's become quite useful as a record of bird populations over time. For scientists and conservationists. So it's a fun event and you're contributing to science at the same time. And it's also social. It's a good excuse to get out of doors at the coldest time of the year. That's really cool. I I dig that. I dig that. Um, Do you think that stuff like that inspires people to get more involved in other citizen science projects? Yeah, for sure. Um, Once you really get into birds, you'll also start coming across a website called ebird.com. You don't even have to be signed up to eBird to start using its features. You can just go right to the website. and. What eBird is, is another database that many birders contribute to every day, not just on a particular count day. And over time, it's accumulated, I don't know how many millions or billions of sightings all over the world. And the website lets you analyze those sightings any way you want. So you can make a map of a particular species in an area and see where it's been seen. You can see who the top birders are in any particular region of the world. You can see photos that have been posted and audio recordings. You can just get the info on where birds have been found. And then once you really get into it, you can start adding your own sightings as well. And it's all vetted by volunteer reviewers who, you know, filter out the sightings that might not be so accurate. (laughs) And um, so it's, it's also become very useful for scientists. I think the coolest thing that eBird has done is use the data to make animated range maps of bird species throughout the course of a year. So you can see a map of where 
for birds are month by month throughout the year and actually watch them move around on the map as birds naturally migrate, mostly in the spring and the fall. It's just um, almost hypnotizing to watch. That's really, really cool. I, I like that a lot. Um, the I know that recently, and I'm sorry, I'm blanking on what they were, but there have been like multiple reports, um, you know, confirmed reports of like sightings of birds just thousands of miles away from where they're supposed to be, like in the wrong country, stuff like that. I have a Zoo News episode that I do every Friday, and I've reported on that a couple of times now. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? What is the scientific community and birder community thinking about that? And, you know, tell me things. Well, birds that show up outside of their normal range are called vagrants. <laughs> and <laughs> vagrants are very exciting to birders because it means you get a chance to see a bird that you wouldn't normally see unless you travel to where it normally lives, which for something like a, a stellar sea eagle might not be visible unless you go to Siberia or something. But there was a sea eagle that showed up on the northeast coast of the U.S. just this past year. And it was like the bird celebrity of the year. <laughs> People were <laughs> flying thousands of miles just to go try to see this one misplaced sea eagle because um, it was in a place where people could find it. And there are bird alerts now. It t they tend to be on WhatsApp groups among birders. So you can get literally up to the second reports when birds like that show up and all the details and then try to go out there and see it yourself because it's pretty crazy that when one individual bird shows up, you can then go back out there the next day and have a pretty good chance of tracking down that same bird. They are rather more predictable than you might think. And so it's uh, always a good opportunity to add another one to your life list. <laughs> That's awesome. Is there a downside to that, though? Is there a risk of too many people coming out or creating like issues for the animal? Or is the birding community very aware of that? I think the, the birding community is pretty aware of disturbance to birds and birds in usual places. Um, almost too self-aware sometimes. But you can have big birder jams around staked out rarities. And in some cases, uh, people get a little too close, but then other birders will back them off. And <laughs> there's there's all these subtleties to the ethics of trying to go see a staked out rarity. But for the most part, I think birders are are very, very generous, very sharing, very respectful of the birds that they're trying to see and um, and just enjoy when there's an opportunity to see something that is very unusual. Wow, that's uh, that's really cool. It's nice that the community is so like into self policing. I really dig that. I think that's um, I think that's important. I think I could see that as being the downside of this. You know, I remember going back to Pokemon Go when it first took off. Um, I was I was playing a gig in Raleigh, North Carolina, and a Snorlax was found. And um, literally hundreds of people took to the streets and there were like they were like running into each other. It was in this park and it was it, it was problematic. There were too many people there. Kids were like getting separated from their parents. It was a whole thing oh huh? my gosh. <laughs> for an imaginary <laughs> Snorlax. Yes. And, and I say that fully aware of the fact that I was also, you know in the park and trying to get the Snorlax. So. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's cool when people can come together. I love the idea of like, as birding continues to grow and especially with technology, making it maybe a little more accessible for people. I love the idea that someday there might be that much excitement about, you know, 
actual animals that that actually matter in the real world. That would be that's that's a beautiful thought. I love I love the idea of people flying to see a stellar sea eagle. That's just that's gorgeous, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the most birders I have ever seen in one spot looking at one bird was a few years ago in northern Ohio. The spring migration there is phenomenal because in mid-May, migratory songbirds stack up against the southern shoreline of Lake Erie and wait for good weather to make the crossing of the Great Lake. And you can see lots of warblers, especially on a good day. And a rare warbler called the Kirtland's Warbler was discovered because it happened to fall in the middle of a birding festival that week. There were thousands of birders in the area. And pretty soon I counted 750 birders standing in the same parking lot, all trying to look at one warbler that was like three inches long, splitting (laughs) from tree to tree. And every time the warbler flew across the parking lot, there was this like heard a birder sloshing from one side of the parking lot to the other. It was, it was crazy. It was as much birder watching as bird watching at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's awesome. That's such a great story. Um, I know that we're winding down time-wise here, so I have two more questions for you. First of all, are there any conservation organizations that you'd like to give a shout out to? Oh, I think there are all kinds of conservation groups doing great work these days. I mean, the, the usual ones, the, the National Audubon Society here in the U.S., And the RSPB in England and the UK, which is the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. There are smaller groups as well that are working on localized projects in different places. And those, I I can't really go group by group as much as say that I really respect local conservation efforts because I think they're often most effective when they have buy-in from local people on the ground rather than a big international group coming in and like telling you this is how it's going to be. Anyway, I think it's, um, again, just inspiring. That people all over are working on these different projects in different parts of the world and seeing great success in places and being able to bring back habitats that have been decimated and, and repopulate native bird populations. All of that is happening right now. So it's not all doom and gloom out there. I love that. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rock Safari Poop Story. Well, I remember when I was little, I took a trip to Mexico. And in Mexico, there is a bird called a frigate bird. I don't know if you've seen pictures of birds in like uh, they're also in the Galapagos, a big bird that blows up a giant red throat pouch. Yes, uh, under yes. Its chin. Frigate birds are a kind of a weird one because they um they're big. They have like a several foot wingspan. They're not waterproof and they fly over the ocean, so they can fly for months at a time without ever landing. They can sleep in midair. They harass other birds for food, but because they mostly eat fish and they are a rather large bird, their guano, as bird poop is called, is rather runny (laughs) and copious. (laughs) And I just remember walking up this Mexican waterfront as like a little kid on spring break, and a frigate bird flew right overhead and then let loose, and it basically covered my entire left arm from (laughs) the hand all the way up to the shoulder. It was dripping off, and... Now, I have to be honest, when I look back at that episode, I think, actually, 
that's pretty cool. I can't <laughs> think of that many people that have been pooped on by a frigate bird of all birds in the world. That is like the luckiest thing that could ever happen. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Of course. Yeah, it's that's so fun chatting about birds. Have a good one. All right. So there you have it, folks. An awesome interview with an awesome birder. And I hope it inspires you to maybe head outside and take a look at the uh, the birds that live in your area and maybe get to know them a little bit better. Uh, it's It's pretty cool to think, you know, I mean, this is obviously a podcast that is focused on mostly zoos and aquariums. And it is very cool to go to those places and to see animals. But, um, you know, we have a large free zoo right outside. Uh, and it's got a heck of a cool aviary. And its its name is Nature. God, that was cheesy. <laughs> but I like it. Anyway, the story that I wanted to share with y'all about all of this is that, um, you know, you can actually kind of become a birder without even knowing that you're a birder. And uh, this has happened to my mother, and I think it's really fascinating and really cool, and and I just kind of wanted to share it quickly here. Um, so a couple of years ago, my mom and dad really got into kayaking. They do a lot of it. They um, they go out. They will travel just to to kayak in places, and um, a big part of that became my mother got a camera with a really good zoom. And she started taking pictures of various birds. And early on, knowing that Zoe and I were very into animals, she would occasionally send me pictures and be like, what is this? What is that? Or she would just look them up online and try to figure it out herself. And it's gotten to the point where lately, whenever we talk and she's been kayaking, we end up having these long discussions about the various birds that she's seen and you know, how many times she's seen them before or not and all of that. And then she started to get involved with the Audubon bird count and submitting information through that and all of those things. And uh, it was funny, as I was editing this episode, um, I texted my mom and I was just completely out of the blue. And I was like, hey, question for you. Do you consider yourself a birder? And uh, I thought it was really an, an interesting little conversation because she was like, I guess so, even though I don't know too much, but more than many, I did participate in the Audubon Society's Christmas bird count. And I was like, yeah, that, that's cool. You're a birder. Yay. And, and you know, talked to her about this interview a little bit and told her to listen. Um, and uh, she she was telling me how even, you know, little things like she said, I'm certainly not an expert, but I learn more every day. I recently bought a bird feeder that you put whole peanuts in. And you cannot believe some of the guests we have had at the feeder. They clean out the feeder in about a day. It's amazing to see little birds like the tufted titmouse sticking entire peanuts in their mouth and swallowing it shell and all and uh i just love that i love that birds bring my mom such joy and she found this great connection to nature and that because you know i love animals so much it's now become a cool part of our relationship as well which is you know meaningful um and it just kind of happened by being out there and, and seeing the things and and that i think is is the coolest thing about birding whether you consider yourself a, a professional birder like noah or an amateur birder like my mom or maybe you know aren't even sure if you are one or not like my mom or you're someone like me who 
doesn't put in that time as much, but also whenever I am out in nature, I'm like, ooh, burb, and try to figure out what it is. Uh, you know, this is something for everyone, and I think that's that's really, really cool. Um, so yeah, I hope that y'all are inspired by this episode a little bit and, and maybe you can start talking to your friends about what birds you've seen. Um, that's, <laughs> this is why I don't have any friends. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So yeah, if this is, uh, something that you're interested in, in pursuing further, check out the show notes, check out uh, Noah's book and, uh, you know, let me know on social media that you're starting to look into birding or that you've gotten into birding or whatever the, the case may be. I'd love to hear some more cool birding stories. And uh, I'll be back on Friday with this next week's Zoo News, which I will be recording in Phoenix, Arizona. So that's exciting. I will talk to you all then. And until then, remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.